Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. And welcome to Capital Weekly's weekly podcast. I'm John Howard, editor of Capital Weekly, and uh, joining me today is Ron Unz, candidate for the United States Senate, also a software uh, entrepreneur extraordinaire, and he's going to tell us about the Senate race. What is the core message that you bring to the Senate race? What, what, uh, how would you encapsulate that? Well, I, I really could say that I'm a very independently minded Republican. In other words, I pick issues one at a time. Some of them might be more liberal, some of them might be more conservative. The biggest issue I'm running on is keeping English in the public schools in California. For 18 years now, since we passed our 227 initiative, all immigrant children have been taught English as soon as they start school. It's worked out very very well. They've been able to move forward. Latino students are doing much better in California than we were doing in the past. And the state legislature, for unknown reasons, is trying to repeal that measure and go back to Spanish-only classes in the public schools for immigrant children, which is something I very much disagree with. What the assimilation issue, you know, immigrants come into California, thinking now of Latinos themselves, or Mexico, coming into California and not speaking English. Uh, should there be a gradual assimilation? Should there be some period where... Uh, you know, where they assimilate to the larger culture as opposed to requiring English only at a specific point in time. The thing is, I'm not really necessarily an advocate of English only. What we're talking about is English in the schools. The majority of the children we're talking about are born in the United States. They're born in California. They start school in kindergarten or the first grade along with all the other children. They start school possibly not speaking much English, but they learn it very quickly. When you're five years old, you can learn another language very easily. So the current system is working very well. The test scores of working with children are much higher than they used to be. The founding president of the California Association of Bilingual Educators said he'd been wrong for 30 years and became a born-again convert to English immersion. So the current system is working, and I I think it's just wrong to go away from it. Another issue I'm focusing on, which is very important, is to raise the minimum wage. Now, most Republicans tend to oppose the minimum wage. I've been backing it for five years now. The minimum wage on the federal level is just $7.25 an hour, and if I were elected a Republican U.S. Senator from California, one of my top priorities would be to raise the national minimum wage to $12 an hour, and I would have a lot of credibility on that issue. One quick last question. The um, the standard bearer right now for the Republicans nationally is Donald Trump. He's made statements about immigration, obviously. So as a Republican, uh, do you have... How do you square? Do you have difficulty reconciling? You know, in fact, you're a Republican and you've got the front runner making these statements and seeing the guys. Oh, it's really a problem for the Republicans. You know, the truth is, Donald Trump makes a lot of outrageous statements. He really doesn't know a lot of what he talks about. But it's not a good choice among the Republican running. I mean, to be perfectly honest, you know, I'm not really thrilled about any of the candidates running on the Republican side. And of them, I mean, I actually probably will be voting for Donald Trump in the primary because the other Republicans are donor puppets. They do exactly what the donors say. And that's the reason Donald Trump has been getting so much support, as well as Bernie Sanders on the other side, because they're opposed to the establishment. And there's tremendous dislike of the party establishment, both among Republicans and among Democrats. Do you think there's a return to the establishment in the general? Uh, you know, Hillary over uh, Trump. Say Trump gets it. So Hillary versus Trump and Hillary. It's on hard Trump. to say. I mean, obviously, Donald Trump has made a lot of enemies, and you know, 
the, but the latest polls show, I mean, Hillary has a pretty negative track record of her own, as you know, Bernie Sanders has been pointing out. So the last poll I saw showed that it might be a pretty close race. I mean, California is a very democratic state, so the Democrats would probably carry California, but a lot of other states, the Republicans may have a better shot than they sometimes do. Ron Hunts, thank you very much. Thank Thanks you. a lot. Thanks for taking the time. Oh, no and not getting run over by 100 people. Exactly. We're back. We're back at the California Republican Party's convention in Burlingame, and we have Mike Madrid, a political consultant extraordinaire. Thanks. Latino specialist. Yep. Um, and Republican, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it's true. That's what I wanted to ask. As far as Republican Latinos go, yeah. what's the sense here you're getting on in the convention of how that's playing out vis-a-vis -vis Trump and vis-a-vis -vis uh, any other issues? So just to put it in perspective, about 18% of the registered Latinos in California are Republican. Okay. So we're not talking about a very large sample size to begin with. Okay. Uh, there are about 700,000 Latino Republicans uh, in the state. And um, to kind of qualify what I just said, 700,000 Latino Republicans is, is more Republicans than all the Republicans in about 20 states. So it's not big by California standards, it's not big by Latino standards, but it, but it's, it, is, it is a sizable number. Do you know how they're broken? Are they, you know, are they likely voters, high propensity voters? Uh, uh, well, Latinos generally have a lower uh, vote propensity than non-Latino voters. Latinos have the lowest propensity of the four major ethnic demographics in the state. Largest percent of the population at 39%, lowest in terms of turnout. And there's a, there's a lot of reasons why that, that, that is the case. Specifically to, to the Latino Republicans, um, something also to keep in mind is Latino Republicans are going to play a disproportionately high influence in this primary because it's a closed primary. And you got to remember that unless you're a registered Republican, you can't vote. And most Latino Republicans live in Latino communities, so we, we estimate that Latino Republicans will have a six and a half times more greater vote power than white Republicans, for example. How do you see um, voter registration so far going for uh, for Republican Latinos? Can you parse that out? Can you tell? Yeah, we can, we can tell. It's not increasing. Uh -huh. Most of the registration increases in the state are coming from younger folks, uh, and it plays differently. Republicans are getting a very small share of that. Democrats get the lion's share, but we also know that these young Latino Democrats have an extremely low propensity to vote. Extremely low propensity. Very low. Very unlikely that they show up to vote. They're the World Cup voters, I call them. They show up once every four years, and then they kind of go away. Uh, the fastest-growing segment, uh, as Paul Mitchell will tell you, of no-party preference voters, which is the fastest-growing segment overall, the fastest places it's happening geographically is in communities of color and Latino communities. So we're seeing what I call the great disaffiliation. Is Latinos, especially Latino millennials, not comfortable in the Democratic Party, dislike the Republican Party going to the, to the no party preference position even faster than Californians generally and that's happening at a rate faster than it's happening anywhere in the country. Well then how does that play out in the general? They, they're forsaking well, both parties. Yeah, they're largely in, in practice they're forsaking both parties. What they're doing is they're choosing amongst the lesser of two evils and at this point in time for good reason the Republican Party exists as the greater evil. So it's a, really a default vote. And that, that more, as much as anything, there are a lot of factors that drive that are driving 20 years of low turnout with Latino voters, but that's certainly one of them. There's no question. It's just there's not a strong affinity for the Democratic Party, which sounds, uh, you know, antithetical, 
but it's you know it's it's essentially true. Otherwise, you wouldn't see these large growth spurts of decline to state, no party preference, and you wouldn't see extraordinarily low civic participation, voter participation rates, especially amongst Democrats. Well, aside from the from the presidential race, uh, does this what tale does this tell us about statewide state races, like a U.S. Senate race, or say or federal, like a U.S. Senate race or a race for governor, constitutional officers? Is this how does that play out there? Well, it's really a, a tale of two Californias, and it depends on what moment in time we're talking about. You could look in a very narrow way at these World Cup events once every four years and say California doesn't have a voter turnout problem because people turn out in extraordinary numbers during that presidential contest. It's all the contests in between where we have seen a collapse. So it really depends. The, the variance is so big that we literally have off-cycle elections in Los Angeles County, for example, the largest, most populous Latino county in the country, that will have a 9, 10, 11% turnout rate. I mean, ridiculously low. Even lower than those numbers with Latino voters. Now, you compare that to what's likely to happen in November with a Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump campaign, and you're going to see extraordinarily high turnout. So what we're seeing is a wider, uh, higher high turnout elections and lower low turnout elections, and that change in the composition is what is driving these 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 representation discrepancies. So by that I mean, if Latino voters are going to have a very different impact in the current Senate race as they will in in two years from now, and, and presumably that Senate race if Diane Feinstein chooses not to run. Is that I mean I hate to not answer the question real directly. But it's a little bit new. There's a little bit of nuance there. With Trump, what would he have to do to encourage Latinos to keep Latino? If he is the Republican frontrunner, uh, what 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 does he have to do to bring him in the party, keep him in? I don't think there's anything he can do. His, his negatives are at 87 percent with Latino voters. I've never seen. When I was polling and looking at Pete Wilson's numbers during the height of anti-Latino sentiment. Pete would usually never get negatives over 74, 73, 77, wow, maybe. Exactly. Yeah. Amongst right? Latinos. Amongst Latinos only. Yeah. Just Latinos. <laughs> Trump is an 87. I mean, that, that is like, that's like malaria <laughs> territory. I mean, that's, that's unbelievable. So I don't know that there's really much that can be done at this point that can bring Latinos uh, into the Trump tent. Yeah. Um Look, I mean, I have to put a qualifier on it because everybody's sure. speaking about this with some authority has to. Trump is doing something different that we, we as political professionals have never seen before. There's nobody alive that gave this candidacy much credibility in the professional political consulting world eight months ago. Yeah, totally. Now he's like, very likely to be the nominee. He's playing a different game, and it's not a Republican game. So I think he's probably going to be more competitive than we think he is. But all I can go off is the data I see today. And today, I don't know how he, he, he doubles back to, to change uh, a very negative impression he has. How does he stay, we were talking about this driving in this morning, how does he stay so far ahead of the group, so much the front runner with such high negatives? Not just Latinos, but his negatives that I saw were in the mid-70s. So how does that happen? How does he... How does he well, we have to remember we're really entering a phase where no politicians have really high positives. Yeah. There were some reporters tweeting out yesterday with the jobs and economy numbers that Obama's numbers, approval ratings have gone up. Yeah, they've gone up one point. Like, that's news now. They're right? still like half, right? 49, 50? Yeah, we, and that's usually where it stays. 49% will support him even if he, you know, you know, crashed the family car and kicked Michelle out of the White House, right? <laughs> Conversely, it's that one or two point shift, which is now newsworthy because Americans are so now uh, 
There's no undecided voters in America anymore. There's nobody in America right now who's going, huh, Hillary, Hillary or Trump. I just can't decide, right? That doesn't, that doesn't exist. So, thank you very much. Yeah, I don't know. Thank if, you I, very I much. know we didn't talk about anything you wanted to talk about, so I apologize. It didn't matter. It was more fun anyway. Okay, good. My questions were yeah. boring. Right. They were really. <laughs> Jim will tell you they were boring. It's hard to keep Madrid focused sometimes. Thanks a so lot. Thanks. Thank you very much. It was helpful. Yeah, call me if you ever need me. Uh, welcome. We're back at the California Republican Convention. We're not on the floor, but we're in a better scene here. We're in the balcony, I think. We've got Kevin Spillane, a longtime political consultant extraordinaire. You've done a lot of campaigns. I'm just an uh, old guy who's been around a long time is what it is. That's my line. That's what I tell people. Kevin, thank you very much for being here. Thank you. Um, what, what's your, as you look at the convention so far, the state convention so far, what's your takeaway in terms of, like, uh, party unity? Well, I think actually Donald Trump has done a lot for party unity. What I have seen is that people who don't get along on many things at all here are unified against Trump at this uh -huh. convention. Okay. He's not received much of a warm welcome. I found myself agreeing with people I never agree with on the level of antipathy, and frankly, I can only call it disgust for Trump. Uh -huh. uh, people were not impressed by his speech yesterday. Uh, I heard that from a number of folks, okay. and uh, very differing ideological persuasions. And if you, you don't see a lot of Trump stickers around here, do you? No. Is there a Stop Trump uh, movement? Is it gaining ground? I, I is think it, is I it real? I think the Stop Trump movement is Ted Cruz, out of necessity. He's the only Republican who really can't stop, uh, deny Trump the nomination. You're seeing a lot of people like myself who are, quote, moderates or pragmatic conservatives or establishment or whatever you want to call them, out of necessity, like Pete Wilson today endorsing Ted Cruz, going there because that is the one option to really stop uh, stop Trump. John Kasich just doesn't have the resources or the infrastructure necessary to be viable and compete. You think Cruz can get the resources? Can he build a campaign with, with another? Well, I think, I think Cruz has built a campaign. I mean, he's done very well. Uh, he is in a strong second place. Uh, and I think he's someone who has run a very smart campaign. So I do think he can win California. Um, we're going to have to see what happens with Indiana on Tuesday. That's going to be a, a, a key, key race. Why is Indiana so crucial? Well, people see that as a race that's been wide open. And they're really going to say, if Trump carries Indiana, they're going, uh, conventional wisdom will be key that Trump's got the nomination. I said he's okay. on track and that he can't be stopped. If Cruz beats him in Indiana, and I just saw a Fox News poll that had Cruz up double digits, which is kind of interesting because the conventional wisdom has been that Trump had the edge, it was going to be close. But if Cruz can win Indiana, it'll give him new momentum, probably new resources, and it really will come down to California on June 7th. It's June 7th, what the California Republicans decide to do. What is, uh, where is the place in the party for Latinos? I was talking with Mike Madrid just a few minutes ago about, about this issue. Given Trump's statements, given that he's a front-runner right now, if you're a Latino and immigration is hot for you, is a big issue for you, how does Trump, how can you support him? Well, I think Trump, honestly, uh, is incredibly harmful to the Republican Party, which is ironic because he's not really a Republican. Uh, it's more of a hostile takeover uh, that he is uh, in the process of doing. Uh, hopefully it can be stopped, but no, this is uh, not good for Latino Republicans. It's not good for the party in general. Uh, Trump has been enormously damaging. And the question is whether, uh, if he's the nominee, whether other Republican elected officials and candidates can effectively distance themselves from him. And that's going to be a key test, because if Trump is the nominee, he is going to lose in the landslide in November. That I am very confident of. The only question is, how many Republicans does he take down with him? Uh -huh. Okay. One other question on the uh, top two. It doesn't apply to the presidential race, but on the top two, it does apply to U.S. Senate. Um, 
do you have any feeling, any sense about UNS? You got a Republican candidate there. He apparently is doing well in polling. Well, I mean, well was relative term. Uh, what was it? Five percent that he had. And the problem is there are a dozen Republicans running for that uh, slot in the uh-huh. top two. Okay. The vote's very divided, uh, very spread out, and there actually is a realistic chance for the number two Democrat, Lorena Sanchez, to make it into that runoff. Yeah, that uh, just because there are so many Republican candidates, and none of them has any name ID. Or any resources. Okay. So you're going to see most Republican voters are going to go into, and there are also, I believe, like 15 third party candidates or independent candidates, and a number of Republican voters will cast ballots for them too. Okay. So you're going to have, for the average Republican voter stepping into that voting booth or casting that ballot, it's going to be an eeny, meeny, miny, mo situation where they're going to go off uh, probably, if there's any name ID, which is there's very little for any of them, including Ron Ives, or going off ballot designation. Okay, fair enough. Kevin Spillane, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for participating in our high-tech podcast. I like it. I like it. You're at my speed. All right, guys. Thanks a lot. Uh, We're back at the Republican, state Republican convention here in Burlingame, and I have with me Marty Wilson, uh, political consultant extraordinaire, now working with Jobs Pack, which is part of the Chamber of Commerce political action effort. Correct. You've been doing this a long time, so I guess my first question is, what is what's your takeaway from the Republican convention this year in terms of what you're looking at, what your strategies are? Well, uh, it's certainly exciting um, I, uh, to have the presidential candidates uh, all, all be here. I, uh, I don't think that's ever happened, and I've been doing this now for 40 years. My first convention was 1978, and I don't recall, outside of Ronald Reagan, because he was the you know, the, the favorite son, you know, that many candidates being being at our, uh, our convention and certainly have all three in one weekend this is phenomenal. Did you get a sense of the reaction from uh, the folk, the rank and file? How yeah. did it, you know? Yeah, I thought it's pretty interesting. We were talking about that earlier, and the fact is, is that I don't think Donald Trump was particularly warmly received, I would say. Uh, they were respectful. After all, we're Republicans. <laughs> so so we behave. <laughs> behave nicely. And, uh, and, and uh, so he, you know, got his standing ovation, And but there wasn't many applause lines. I thought Cruz was more warmly received. I didn't go to the dinner last night, but I heard Kasich did a very good job, uh, very good job as well. You see um, a change in the Republican Party's uh, Structure or its spectrum. I mean, is it leaning more to the center, leaning going more to the right? Does is Cruz hoping that that's the fact? Hopes to build. He hopes to build a support from, say, an increasingly right-trending Republican Party, or is youth changing that somehow? Or well, you know, that's it's it's a it's a it's a difficult question because you have to differentiate the California, you know, Republican. Party and and what what you know people like Charles Munger and Jim Rolte are trying to accomplish versus what's happening nationally and so you know our party uh, in California is more diverse uh, it has to be because we have a more diverse uh, population uh, and so if you look at the great successes that California enjoyed in 2014 it was electing. Uh, Asia-Pacific candidates uh, that were female in the case of uh, Young Kim and and Janet Nguyen down in Orange County, Uh, uh, Catherine Baker, uh, you know, in a seat that has been traditionally Democratic uh, in the Bay Area. Those, you know, I think those speak to the the diversity efforts that the party under Jim Brulte has uh, has made uh, and they're bearing success. If if Trump ultimately gets the nomination, um, what what does that what what does that mean for 
people of color, Latinos, who are Republicans. What does it mean for Latino Republicans, given his positions on immigration and his statements? Uh, how do you reconcile? How do Republicans reconcile? Well, I think that you know they have to. Uh, I mean, Republicans running for down ticket races, I think is a better way to look at it. Have always had a challenge because generally the party standard bearer is somebody that's going to be more to the right than than they are and they have to you know I'll use that word again they have to differentiate themselves and talk about issues that are local and that are that, that are important to them um, I don't know what effect Trump will have on those those races and does the top two help you all or not oh yeah it would apply to US Senate yeah the top two helps us a lot from the business community perspective okay. and it helps the Republicans they don't agree with me on that but it does help the Republicans okay. Morty, thank you very much. All right, Thanks for taking the time. Glad to do it. Great, we're back here at the California Republican Party's convention in Burlingame, and I have with me Carol Damon, political marketing director for Comcast Spotlight. Right. Or Spotlight. Okay. Yes, hi. Uh, Carol, I wanted to ask you about... Um, Political television, political advertising this year. Everybody's telling me, "Oh my God, it's presidential election. There's a lot going on. We're going to see a big spike." I don't know. So I thought, can you tell me what's it mean for people sitting in front of their TV sets? Are we going to be bombarded with TV? Well, you know, the likelihood of us being bombarded the last seven to ten days is pretty good. Um, we're going to have a much better sense of that, you know, once we get past Indiana. But the fact that you know, this is such an expensive media state. Yeah. You know, for what it costs for a week in California, you could basically go buy 17 other states. You know, I mean, it's so expensive to buy media here. Um, yes, I, I think we're going to see probably money from, from both the Democrats and the Republican presidential candidates. You know, Bernie does seem to be winding things down a little bit, but he's not... He's still got an agenda to push, and he still has money to spend. And there, he's got a lot of support here in California, and and he's going to continue to push push Hillary, even though he's probably you know sort of out of it. Is there a different rate uh, for how much stations charge? A candidate and how much stations charge like for a ballot proposition? Oh yes, yeah. Candidates are entitled to what's called the lowest unit charge, which is what we call, which is what the lowest charge for our most preferred client. Now that time, you know, pretty much can go away once the inventory starts to sell out, and then you have to pay, you know, what's called a non-preemptible rate for candidate which is still probably, in most cases, lower than the issue rates. Issue rates are the highest. Those are, the, you know, it's, uh, you know, towards the end of a, of a campaign, it can be, like, three or four times higher than what a candidate pays. Oh, really? Okay. And as we go into the fall, where we're going to potentially see 16 initiatives on, on a ballot, um, you know, it's going to be tough for candidates. You know, the, is this the, like a gold rush? For TV, I mean, it's always the, the traditional prejudice of newspapers, you know, yeah. is that all this high-end dough always goes to broadcasting and the TV, but it sounds like that's what might be happening. Uh, it, with initiatives, they're definitely, it, it, it is sort of a, a gold rush for, for, for those of us in the, in the media business, but we haven't had that since 2010, since Meg Whitman. You know, we went, we, we, we you know, we kind of lived through a, a pretty tough recession, um, and 
you know, Jerry didn't spend any money in 2014 for re-election. Yeah, he didn't have to. So uh, this is going to be the first cycle in a really long time that that you know those of us that are working in media will will, will see a, a good spike. Um, now you're a Democrat. We're at a Republican convention. We've got Republican campaigns. Do I mean, do you ever run across, oh, Carol, you're a Democrat. I don't want to buy TV time. I mean, I don't know. No, you know what? I'm, I'm 10 years post-partisan, you know, sort of out of the, the day-to-day politics. And I've built really good relationships with the Republican consultants here in the state. I enjoy working with them. And money is green no matter which side of, yep. that you're on. And, um, you know, we want to get our all the candidates, uh, you know, airtime so they can talk to their constituents. Um, it's an important part of the Democratic process. The closer you get to the campaign or to the election, then the more the time has been used. Or the, the time is allocated. It's been it's set aside. Certain people have already purchased their time. Yeah, you know it's interesting. So, it's interesting. Um, the medical issue has already purchased time for for the for the November cycle. Uh-huh. So they're being very very smart. Um, because they know how tight it's going to be in November. Um, you if, know, you, if you haven't bought your time in, in time, if you haven't bought your, your time well in advance, is there a chance you could be shut out if you're a campaign? You couldn't. You can't get the time that you're going to need? If you don't decide, if you hesitate and don't decide till later on in the... Uh, I don't, we've never really run into that issue in California. Okay. I, you know, Iowa certainly gets, and Ohio get, get pretty backed up. You, you know, on broadcast, they can create as much time as they want because, um, you know, with newscasts, you can, you can create like these seven or yeah. eight, nine-minute pods of ads, but, you know, you kind of get lost. It is in everybody's best interest to, you know, to, to buy your time early. Yeah. Do you ever see, is there a, a fatigue factor with... You know, if you see so many ads and all of a sudden, oh, my God, here comes another ad. I'm turning off my television. You know, everybody everybody likes to say that, but no, because all the campaigns are going to want to be on the air because they do not want their opponents to be on the air. Uh-huh, okay. And, you know, the fatigue factor is... Nothing. I'm the only one getting tired. Yes. I can t- yes. <laughs> okay, one last question, not about TV, so I don't know if this is your in your wheelhouse or not, but it seems like Internet, I mean, everybody goes online to look at news, uh, I can't remember the last time I went to an online, you know, a TV news show. I just I go online. So, are there is there advertising going online that's proving? Do you handle anything like that? Yes, yes. In fact, we're this cycle because it's going to be so large in November. We we are going to see um, lar- a larger percentage of overall media budgets pushed into the digital space. Uh-huh. Um, you see a lot more ads on Facebook. Um, you'll see a lot more ads um, on traditional news sites, you know, San Francisco Chronicle, L.A. Times, um, a- as well as, uh, you know, it, you, you want to stay away from the potential ad networks uh, to some extent so that you don't end up with what happened with Prop 8, where, you know, you bought this bad, big, vast ad network uh, for an anti-gay you know, vote no, and you end up on porn sites. That that's that's some of the problems that which is where we up. always go. And that's where we saw them. <laughs> Just kidding, a little, little humor there. Yeah, but that's going to be a really interesting thing to watch as we as we move through this election cycle. How many of these campaigns move more of their budgets over to the digital side? Oh, okay, cool. Carol Gaiman, thank you very much. Oh, it's a pleasure, my coming. friends. Take care. We'll see you at the next convention.
Well, well, we're back on the uh, at the Republican convention in Burlingame, and we're talking now with Steve Chesson of Californians for Electoral Reform. Now, we chatted before about SB 1288, and what exactly is going on with that? Can you tell us a little about this bill? Sure, uh, but but. First, I'd like to give a little background about our organization, sure. if I could give a little plug. Yeah, Californians for Electoral Reform, we're a, um, a nonpartisan, or more accurately, a multipartisan organization. We're all volunteer, membership-based, we have no paid staff. We're a very small organization, we have about 200 dues-paying members statewide, our annual budget's about $5,000 a year. Yeah, we've been very successful with, with our work. And I invite people to go visit our website, www.cfer. Californians for Electoral Reform, CFER.org, to find out more about us. When I first uh, came by, it seemed like you might be a little bit of an outlier at a Republican convention. It seemed more in the Democratic mold, but that's not necessarily true. That's correct. Um, we believe that winner-take-all elections, where whoever gets the most votes wins, even if it's not a majority, are not good for democracy. And for some reason, well, Democrats seem to grasp that. Uh, much more quickly, or agree with that much more quickly than Republicans do. That's why we're at the Republican convention. We don't bother going to Democrat conventions. We're the Republican convention because because we need to do more educational work uh, on this side of the aisle. Okay. And are um, we talking about delegate selection for the convention? When we talk about, are we talking something else? Well, we're using that as an example, but we're more focused actually on, say, city council races and the state legislature. Okay. Okay. So, for example. Um, if your side in the city council race gets 30% of the vote, we think you should get 30% of the seats on the city council, not nothing. And if the winning side gets 60% of the vote, they should get 60% of the seats, not all of them. So that's just basic fairness, and that's what we're all about. Now, as it is today, only charter cities have the right to choose their, their electoral system. That's based upon the, the home rule provisions in the state constitution. General law cities have to follow whatever's in the state code. That's for him. General law cities have to follow whatever's in, in the state code, okay. uh, which restricts them to winner-take-all systems. Um, so the state law defaults to winner-take-all. That is correct. In fact, uh, a general law city is allowed to either elect at-large with winner-take-all or using districts, but again winner-take-all. They can't use a, a two-round runoff system in a district election. Like our larger city, our larger cities and our charter cities that do have districts, like uh, San Jose and San Francisco and Los Angeles, uh, they tend to use two-round runoff. Well, actually, San Francisco used to use two-round runoff, where you have a first election. If someone gets a majority, they win. If no one gets a majority, the top two vote getters have a second runoff election. The problem with two-round runoff is that. You either have a November, the first election is either in November, which has a large turnout, and then you have a runoff in December or January or February, which has a much lower turnout, or your winnowing of the field happens during the June primary, which has about half the voters that a November election does. So you don't really have the same electorate. Plus, the jurisdiction has to pay for two elections, and the people who are in the runoff, they have to raise money twice which is also expensive for them. The nice thing about instant runoff voting, or what some people call ranked choice voting, is that you can get a majority winner in a single election um, without the need for a second expensive runoff election. So candidates save money, the jurisdiction saves money. So that's one of the reforms we push. But the other reform we push is this proportional system. And as I said... Is that reform you just talked about, is that an SB 1288? SB 1288 includes the ability for general law cities 
to use two-round runoff or instant runoff or a proportional system. Gives them the option. Gives them the option. It doesn't require them to do anything. They can keep the current system that they have. It also has a clause that if they've been ordered by a court, say under the California Voting Rights Act, to adopt a district system, then they can't change that. Have you had any feedback from the city's uh, general law or charter that they want this or they don't want it? Um, I believe that the uh, California League of Cities supports 12B88, Common Cause supports 12B88. They're actually a co-sponsor of the bill with us. Uh, one last question that may or may not be in your wheelhouse, but I'm wondering about the registration. We keep hearing registration is up. Um, not necessarily officially, but people check the counties within the last week or two, like our data guy, is that re registration seems to be spiking. If that's true, what do you think is driving interest, increased interest and increased registration? Do you get anything from your perch here, people? From what I hear? can give you my personal opinion, you know, not our, our organization, but I, I think what's driving the increase in registration is the interesting elections that are going on. That's what, that's what drives turnout. If you've got a very competitive election, you get high turnout. Great. Steve Chesson, thank you very much. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thanks for getting run over here in the middle of the corridor. So. Not a problem. Here we are back at the state California Republican Party convention. And now we have with us two real people. We've talked to politicians. We've talked to consultants. But now we have two real people, journalists, a writer and a photographer. Sam, the writer. Cyril, the photographer. Both from the University of California Berkeley School of Journalism. Uh, so we've been exploiting them mercilessly all day, and they're here reporting, and we thought, you know, we're going to get them on the podcast and ask them how it's going. So, Sam, uh, you mentioned you were here at the protest yesterday. Uh, what was that like? Well, tell us a little bit about it. There was a lot of people out here. We, uh, we estimated hundreds of people were out. It was very specifically an anti-Trump protest. Uh -huh. The protesters were saying they saw Trump stood for basically racism hate and bigotry, so they came out to sort of shame Trump and his supporters. So a lot of, there were signs and placards, there was, there, there was no fisticuffs, nobody getting or were there? Uh, there was some uh, violence. Um, early on, uh, a Trump supporter wearing a suit and the, the red hat walked through the crowd and he began to get mobbed by the crowd and the press. And uh, definitely punches were thrown during that altercation, and he got surrounded by the mob, and eventually the police sort of pulled him through a bush. But the whole time he seemed kind of reveling in this whole experience at the same time. And then the protesters clashed with police, too. At one point, the protesters uh, toppled the barricades and kind of rushed the hotel, and then the police formed a line and, and pushed them back with their batons. So there was, it did get a bit hairy. See, that's the fun of the convention, right? So. Sarah, you, you take photos. Yes, you I do. Pronounce that right, Sarah. Sarah, okay. yes. Um, you're taking photos, and you've been here today working with Sam uh, for that story on young Republicans. What do you think are big, the biggest challenges you face today when you're taking pictures of people? Sometimes they want to have their picture taken, sometimes they don't. Uh, how do you do that? Do you say, be nice? Well, I think the first main challenge earlier in the day was to find young Republicans in the first place. <laughs> when I yeah. saw, when I was at the convention area, everyone was just older uh -huh, in yeah. that sense. And someone even came to me and said, oh, it's nice to see a young face here. Uh -huh, yeah, yeah but, but as the day went by, there are a lot more young Republicans. And they were really receptive to have their photos taken off. And they were really excited and like, oh, where is this going to be published and stuff. So it challenged just earlier in the day, but later on it got more fun. Did you have any issues with getting your equipment around or going into an area? Was security a problem or people 
uh, like the, the police or the guards or something having to check your cameras? No, not so far. The areas that I went were pretty public anyway, but so far nobody has really like scrutinized my camera or anything. <laughs> How long do you intend to stay? Are you going to, in fact, both of you guys going to be here for today and then uh, to do tomorrow or not come tomorrow? Or? The pair of breakfast is at 7 a.m. You should be there. <laughs> <laughs> well, my plan is, is to see how today goes and look at what happens tomorrow. How about you, Sam? Are you going to stick around? Uh, Rob Gunnison, you know, veteran politico, says prayer breakfasts are journalistic dynamite so someone should be here at seven that's for sure i'm not sure because rob, i think rob must go to the prayer record each year he covered the, the conventions and i think that uh, he got good stories out of it yeah. so, you know. but he's really old now so it doesn't matter. <laughs> so, who's talking about old uh, oh speaking of old here's chuck mcfadden former associated press reporter now he's uh, working with us all here at capitol weekly and the uc berkeley school so okay now that chuck's here i think we can wrap it up now i think okay okay thank you very much thank you everybody yeah. very much the Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.